Good afternoon, uh, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, welcome to uh, the Literary Festival. Uh, my name is George Gaskell. I'm a pro-director here, and I'm doing a very minor cameo role just to welcome Pat Barker, who is an alum of the school. Pat studied um, on the BSc Econ, graduated in 1965, and specialized in international history. Um, school was much smaller then, it was more crowded, uh, and it was just gearing up for the, well, what the French called the les événements, the uh, riots and so forth. Uh, but Pat survived because she left just before the riots. <laughs> but I would like to introduce, first of all, the chair of the session, Susanna Biernoff, who is a lecturer in modern and contemporary visual culture at Birkbeck College, just up the road. Susanna has a uh, uh, background in Australia, did a PhD at the University of Sydney, Sight and Embodiment in the Middle Ages. This was published some years back, and she is working at the moment on war and visual culture in early 20th century Britain. So without further ado, may I... Welcome, Susanna and Pat and Susanna. Thank you very much. Well, it's my very great pleasure to introduce Pat Barker, whose books include the highly acclaimed Regeneration trilogy, comprising Regeneration, which was made into a film of the same name, as I'm sure many of you have, have seen, The Eye and the Door, which won the 1993 Guardian Fiction Prize, and The Ghost Road, which won the Booker Prize in 1995. Her more recent novels include Another World, Border Crossing, Double Vision, and Life Class. Toby's Room, the book she's going to read from today, was published by Hamish Hamilton last summer. And I'm going to hand over to Pat in just a minute. Um, before I do, I'll just tell you um, uh, what, what we'll be doing um, today. Um, following Pat's reading, I'm going to show you a couple of images uh, and, um, and talk about some of the historical people who make an appearance in the novel. And, uh, and then um, I'll probably ask a few questions myself before opening up the floor to questions from you. So can you be thinking of questions as well? Thank you. Over to you, Pat. Um, this is quite a short reading. Um, uh, there are two people you need to know about to follow what's going on. One is Kit Neville, uh, who's been severely facially injured, but has been allowed out of hospital to, uh, to spend an evening in London. And the other is his friend and rival, Paul Tarrant. Uh, they met at the Slade uh, while uh, Paul was at the Slade before the war. And uh, uh, Kit Neville, uh, much to Paul's dismay, has decided that he doesn't want to spend the evening in the back room of a pub, uh, he wants to go to the Café Royal. And also, much to Paul's surprise, Neville has turned up wearing a mask to uh, hide his facial injuries. And this particular mask is modelled on the face of Rupert Brooke. Despite Neville's frequent self-pitying assertions that he was finished as an artist, overlooked, forgotten, yesterday's man, his return to London had been reported in all the papers 
though nothing had been said about the nature or severity of his wounds. But he was known to be at Queen's Hospital, so the injuries had to be facial. The rumours had begun almost at once. Some people said he was so hideously disfigured, his own mother had run screaming from the room, others that his brain was affected too, that he was either mad or a cabbage. And now here he was, or here somebody was. Neville's thick-set figure and truculent bearing were almost enough to identify him, but not quite. People glanced at the mask and quickly away. Was it him? It had to be but nobody was confident enough to come forward and speak to him. The mask didn't help. Rupert Brooke's face gazing around a room where he'd so often lauded it in the past. Enough to give you the shivers. Neville was on his fifth whiskey. Paul expected him to become even more aggressive, but instead he sank into a morose stupor, peering through the slits in, through the slits in the mask at scenes of former triumph. Two or three years ago, he'd have walked into this room as if he owned it. Paul remembered meeting him there, Neville, the famous war artist, whose latest exhibition was on everybody's lips. And he felt a flicker of shameful pleasure at the reversal of their fortunes, a mean, filthy emotion quickly suppressed. The silence had gone on too long. He tried to find a topic of conversation that would rouse Neville from his stupor, but nothing worked. He either couldn't or wouldn't speak. Instead, he sat staring round the room, the silver face of the dead poet turning from group to group. Gradually, uncertainly, a few people began to respond, raising their glasses, smiling ghost smiles at what must have seemed to most of them a ghost. Suddenly, Paul realised they weren't sure Neville or whoever it was behind the mask could see them. Nothing was visible behind the slits, and he'd stumbled when he first came into the room. A large group at a nearby table fell silent for a time, but then, slowly, the conversation started up again. They were talking about an exhibition that included three of Paul's paintings. Some, at least, of the group must have recognised him, but nobody spoke. The cordon sanitaire around Neville obviously included him, too. They were still, covertly, the focus for every eye in the room. The mask went on smiling its faint archaic smile. Behind it, an eye like a dying sun sank beneath the rim of a shattered cheekbone. The hole where the nose had been gaped wide and the mouth endlessly, tirelessly snarled. Neville was clenching and unclenching his fists. Bastards, I'll bury the whole fucking lot of them. Calm down. Why? Why should I calm down? Two years ago, they were queuing up to lick my ass, and now look at them. They don't know what to say, that's all. He didn't know what to say. More important, he didn't know what to do, how to get them out of this situation. He turned to Neville. Look, why don't we... Suddenly, without any warning, Neville began to roar, the bellow of a wounded bull with the full force of his lungs behind it. Paul tried to grab his arm, but he was too late. Neville was on his feet. He waited till every eye in the room was on him. And then he took off the mask. One or two people cried out. Others were blank with shock. Instinctively, 
Paul stepped in front of Neville, though whether to shield him from their reactions or them from the sight of him, he didn't know. He thought nothing could have been more terrible than that roaring. But then Neville started to cry, a puppy howl of abandonment and loss. Paul put an arm around his shoulders and managed to turn him towards the door. Come on, he kept saying, come on, it's all right, come on. The way he would have spoken to a distraught child or a frightened horse. Neville let himself be led from the room. By the time they reached the payment, he stopped crying, though his chest still shook. And then, to Paul's utter bewilderment, he started to laugh. Did you see their faces? Oh, my God! Paul didn't know how to respond to this. He knew, if he knew anything at all, he knew this, that every part of Neville's anger and distress had been genuine. The brooding, the resentment, the rage, the look at me of the abandoned child or the slighted artist, the tears, the sobbing, it had all been real. Surely it had. And yet Neville's laughter now seemed to deny that. He realised Neville was already hard at work reshaping the events of the evening, carving out for himself, if only in retrospect, a position of authority and control. That was Neville all over, a fat, moist silkworm, perpetually spinning the legend of himself. some assistance to dim the lights a little bit, which I think might help with the slides. I'll keep going. So before we, um, before we move into um, uh, the discussion and conversation, I'd just like to say a few words about some of these characters um, that appear in Toby's room. And in particular, this man um, here in the photograph, Henry Tonks, and his wartime collaboration with the pioneering plastic surgeon, Harold Gillies. Pat Barker's description of the Queen's Hospital, now Queen Mary's Hospital in Sidcup, is... <laughs> I'm fine at the moment. Yeah, that's absolutely fine. So we're not all plunged into um, darkness. Um, okay, so um, so Marcus' description of the Queen's Hospital uh, is um, is truly remarkable. It is, as one reviewer described it, the novel's tour de force. It's also remarkable, I think, because it's um, it's an aspect of the First World War that is still relatively uncharted by historians and I think largely unknown to the British public unless you happen to have a particular interest in the history of plastic surgery or in military medicine. Tonks, who had been a surgeon before becoming an artist, made a series of pastel studies of Gillies' patients in 1916 and 1917. Most of the drawings are now in the collection of the Royal College of Surgeons, which is um, of course, just down the road um, where you can go and see them. And um, a small selection of the drawings was given to UCL in 1963. When I first saw them at UCL in the Strang print room, I was struck by how difficult it would be to write about them, not just because the subject matter is 
disturbing, but because the drawings themselves defy any obvious classification. Are they portraits? Are they medical illustrations? There's a scene in Toby's room where Eleanor confesses to Tonks, who had been her teacher at the Slade, that she doesn't know how to look at them. It's not that she can't bear to look at them, it's that she doesn't know what she's looking at, a man or a wound. The drawings were neither commissioned nor owned by the men who appear in them. A framed selection hung on the wall of Tonk's room at the hospital, and on these he's recorded the sitter's name. But the rest are identifiable only by cross-referencing them with the photographs in Gilly's case files. We don't even know if the men saw their own portraits. Tonks was 52 when the war broke out. By January 1915, he was working in a British Red Cross hospital in France. He realised very quickly that his medical skills were inadequate to the task at hand. But despite his misgivings, in January 1916, he received a temporary commission to the Royal Army Medical Corps. As well as assisting with operations at the Cambridge Military Hospital in Aldershot, he had the unenviable job of assessing whether the patients were fit to return to active duty. And it was Aldershot that Tonks met Harold Gillies. An ambitious young New Zealander, Gillies had convinced the authorities of the urgent need for specialist centres to treat the facial casualties arriving back from the front. One of the earliest accounts in the press of the work being done by Gillies and his team, an article from the Daily Mail in September 1916, set the scene in terms that would have become standard tabloid fare. Nowhere do the sheer horror and savagery of modern warfare appeal so vividly to the mind and senses as in a tour of these wards. Unlike the patriotic and often sentimentalised figure of the broken soldier, the wounded face was taboo. With few exceptions, newspapers and magazines didn't publish photographs of men who had suffered disfiguring injuries. When Gilly Centre moved from Aldershot to Frognall near Sidcup, at the beginning of 1917, pictures of the estate's impressive gardens were favoured. The patients were described as the loneliest of all Tommies, facial injury as the worst loss of all, a great abyss, a loss mitigated only by the miracles of modern medicine. Gillies asked Tonks to draw the patients before and after surgery, as well as producing diagrams of the operations themselves. We can see traces here of earlier marks, evidence of reworking and layering and blending. All works of art are a series of corrections, Tonks once said. And we know from his students that he was particularly interested in conveying a sensation of touch through his drawings. These compelling details of surface texture are largely lost in photographic translation, along with a sense of intimacy created by the scale, which is roughly very small, roughly half life size. In the flesh, as it were, one is struck by the delicacy of the artist's touch and made aware of the duration and the steadfastness of his gaze. Tonks was proud of them, confessing to a former student, Dickie Alpen, not long before he died, that they were the only drawings he was not ashamed of, um, which for me is really interesting because the, um, the response to facial injury and disfigurement was very often sort of evoked in terms of shame and embarrassment. 
They're personal drawings, verging on private, not just because of the physical and psychological exposure involved, but because of the intimate, visual, tactile encounter that remains implicit, indeed embedded in the work. We know very little about the men who appear in these drawings, aside from the information in Gilly's case notes. During their long periods of convalescence, the patients were encouraged to attend workshops and classes to improve their employment prospects and help them to prepare for civilian life. Some of these activities, toy making and carpentry, for example, are featured in a series of small paintings by John Lobley, now in the collection of the Imperial War Museum. Other skills included watch and clock repairing, poultry farming, coach building, cinema operating, dentistry and hairdressing. It's hard to imagine Kit Neville taking part in any of them. Literacy classes were also offered and in one of these in 1922, six of Gilly's patients wrote essays on the topic of my personal experiences and reminiscences of the Great War. In these neatly penned exercises, there is little evidence of despair. Most of the men describe in detail the circumstances surrounding their injuries, the surprising smack of a bullet hitting the face, for example. And four of the six conclude on a positive note. Aside from worries about pensions and employment, the consensus amongst this small and admittedly self-selected group was that it had been worth it. I cannot say I am sorry I joined the army as it has broadened my outlook on life, wrote Private Best. So, after all, I lost little and gained much through the Great War. Toby's room does something that no historical study can do. It fills the silences in the documentary record of the past with voices, images and sensations. Only fiction can get beneath Private Best's stoicism and give Henry Tonks, who left us very few words, such a compelling presence. Most of all, through Eleanor's eyes, we see how hard and ultimately how necessary it is to really look at the consequences of war. In this case, the missing noses, shattered jaws and partially reconstructed faces. The physical reality of ideas like sacrifice and heroism. What's at stake here, I think, is not just witnessing the human cost of war, but being able to see humanity in the midst of such devastation. Put the lighting up a little if you want to. So, Pat, I'd like to begin by asking you, well, first of all, a question that, um, something I'm very curious about, and that is, at what point you first encountered Tonks Pastels? Now, I know that you were um, working on Life Class, um, in which Tonks makes... Um, an appearance. Um, mm. He has a sort of shadowy presence there in the novel, uh, and we meet many of the same characters, Tonk, tonk students, or fictionalised mm. versions yes. of Tonk students. Um, so yes, I mean, what point did you did you come across the pastels? Uh, not till after not till after mm. I'd finished life class. Mm. Uh, I, I went to get an honorary degree from Nottingham, and uh, uh, somebody there mentioned the, the pastels for the first time. Sorry. Oh, okay. Well, I can try sitting closer to the microphone. Yes, we've been told to speak into the mics. Yes. 
and not to look at each other, which is difficult, of course, when you're talking to somebody. Uh, is it all right now? If, it, if it's any time you can't hear, please uh, put your, you know, just wave, basically. <laughs> no, it was after I'd finished life class that I first became aware of the Tonks pastels. I had seen his other work, but for some reason, uh, the pastels themselves, I actually didn't know about. And what fa immediately fascinated me about the pastels, uh, even before I, I'd seen any of them, uh, was that Tonks thought they couldn't be shown. So it, they immediately raised this uh, very difficult and controversial question of, you know, what can be shown uh, about atrocities or about the horrors of war? Because almost invariably there is immense censorship and self-censorship around, around this area. Mm -hmm. I mean, another thing that occurs to me about the Tonks pastels actually reading your novel is that um, he's a particular kind of artist. He's not a fashionable artist. Tonks's paintings were not terribly good, actually. But they, um, I mean, he was a very good draftsman. And this is his drawings um, that he's done, sometimes referred to as surgical studies or surgical portraits, are regarded by most people who know about Tonks as his best work. Uh, and they have a particular quality. They're clearly not avant-garde in any respect. Uh, but they do have a... Um, um, a sort of steadfastness, a, a real commitment um, to the subject, an ability to really look, which I think is something that is lacking from uh, the work of any of the other artists who were working at the Queen's Hospital, and, and, and there were several, but also the writings of uh, journalists and, um, and other commentators at the time. Uh, Tonks was able to really look, and I wonder whether that struck you also. He also, I mean, for me, and, and the Tonks pastels were very much my own starting point um, in this particular research. Uh, and I, um, yes, I, I mean, I was struck that he somehow legitimates our own interest, our curiosity, uh, makes it possible also for us to, to look rather than to turn away. And I wonder if, if that was something that also struck you. Yes, I, I, I think there is a quality of compassion mm. in them, which, as you say, removes the sense of shame that you uh, sometimes and sometimes perfectly rightly feel when you're looking at other people's suffering. Um, if you look at the photographs uh, of the men as they arrived at the hospital, uh, there's a particular one of a man whose entire face is missing below the nose. Uh, it is simply uh, quite a brutal, exact depiction of the way that man looked, unmediated by any compassion. Um, the expression in his eyes is absolutely terrible. And you do sort of recoil and you do feel the, the question, which we should all ask, is should I be looking at this? And of Tonks's answer, of course, um, is that he, he did not want these portraits to be seen. Um, mm. I don't know whether he would ever have changed his mind about that. Do you know whether he changed his mind? No, I don't know that he did. Uh, I, I think the other interesting thing about his um, view on who should see these is that you know, clearly they had, to some extent, a medical purpose, um, and certainly some of them are reproduced in in the surgeon's textbook, Plastic Surgery of the Face, which was published in 1920. 
but as well as that, we know that Tonks was visited by his former students um, who were shown them, um, who were interested in them. On, on one occasion, we know that one of Tonks' students described uh, one of these as, as hauntingly beautiful. Uh, and this really interests me, that I think we're dealing with... Uh, um, a sort of visual education, a notion that some people are more able to look at these things than others, um, that the gaze of some people is more legitimate than that of the general public, certainly. But for Tonks, this wasn't just uh, medical professionals, it was also artists who had this particular uh, education in looking. Uh, and I think that's an idea that, um, that isn't so current today. Yes, I, I'm quite interested in the... Uh, you know, Kit Neville is wearing this mask, and the man who made masks, uh, the most famous one anyway, was called Derwent Ward Muir, who was a sculptor. And it's, it, it impresses me a lot that when he describes the kind of uh, young men that he's dealing with, he, he, he describes their appearance purely in terms of ugliness, uh, that they are revolting, and it is difficult for him to look at them. He is actually afraid of looking at them. And he's not afraid for himself, he's afraid for them. Because he knows if he betrays the slightest sign of repugnance, this young man is going to be desperately badly hurt. And uh, by contrast, Tonks comments more than once, I think, on how some of the injuries uh, may uh, had a curious kind of beauty about them. At the Slade in those days, as um, uh, students spent a great deal of their first year, almost all of it, drawing from antique models. And, of course, a lot of these statues were actually damaged. The nose would be chipped or even removed, or lip would be removed. And uh, he comments that these mutilated young men look like these uh, Greek and Roman statues. And uh, he responds to them aesthetically, which I think is, uh, I think, mm. quite a disturbing thing to do. In the, in the novel, I have my character, Eleanor Brooke, uh, who's going around the wards with Tonks. And she, she finds the aesthetic response that she fe also feels very, very disturbing, partly because it's sexual. Uh, the whole thing, which, of course, uh, you can't get from the histories because people were so reticent in talking about sex, is that these were very young men. And foremost in their minds, when this, these terrible things happened to them, was, can I still get a girlfriend? Or, you know, if they were married, uh, is my wife going to throw up at the sight of me? Mm. Uh, this is uh, this kind of sexual anxiety, I mm. think, is, is what a novelist can deal with them. And perhaps nobody else can, mm. because there simply aren't the documents recording no. that response. No, and in fact, I'm thinking that there's one, there's one sort of stock anecdote that reappears in quite a lot of the um, newspaper accounts of um, the Queen's Hospital, and it has a wife visiting her husband for the first time. So she's not, she knows he's been injured, she knows that it's a facial injury, but she, she doesn't know how bad it is. And, and when she arrives at the hospital, the matron has to take her aside and explain that, uh, the extent of his injuries. Uh, and then she's taken to her husband's bedside, 
and, uh, and instead of being um, revolted by his injury, she leans over and kisses him um, on the worst scar of all. And it is this sort of parable of conjugal love as something which is ultimately healing and redemptive and that overcomes. But it's a I fantasy. Th- I, mean, I, could, I, th- I think it's actually, I think kissing the scar rather than kissing him on the mouth if he still mm-hmm. had one was quite a horrible thing yes, to do, actually. Yeah. I don't think that that is particularly well, it's sensitive. An, it's an act of pity, isn't it's it? It's an act of pity, yes. yes. yes, yes. Mm. Yeah. And, of course, children, those, uh, particularly small children, you know, if you show a baby a face which is not, not the correct shape of a face, if the eyes are in the wrong position or the nose or the mouth is in the wrong position, the baby is attracted to the face because they always are. But then it looks puzzled, and then it starts mm. to cry. And uh, I think, you know, children don't disguise their feelings. And I think a lot of children must have been very frightened of their fathers mm. when they first saw him. Mm. And I'm not sure that, they, uh, that families were particularly encouraged to come and visit them in the early months uh, after their injuries. No, we don't know whether that's because the men who ended up there didn't want their families visiting or mm. that it was thought that it, it wouldn't be helpful, it would be too, too traumatic. But yes, that, this is another stock um, incident, that the child who arrives and then runs from the sight of, of his or her father. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Um, I wonder... Um, and something else I wondered about was... Um, Well, I mean, clearly that the question of art's moral purpose, whether that is to console, um, to inspire, to bear witness, to shock, um, this is a theme that runs through many of your novels. Um, And I wonder whether you could elaborate on Eleanor Brooks' view on the relationship between art and war in Toby's room and how how these views come under pressure gradually during the novel. Mm. Um, So she says at one point that women have nothing to do with the war. She refuses to paint war. Painting, she says, should be about celebration, about beauty and praise. And it's a view, as you pointed out yourself in interviews, that is most often associated with Virginia Woolf. And I wondered if Eleanor, uh, in a way, is a sort of test case for Woolf's ideas. I think in a way she is, yeah. What, what, what Virginia Woolf said much later, 1938, her, uh, her book, Three Guineas, uh, she, she, you know, she did what is so often uh, thought of too, as being too obvious to require comment, that war is almost entirely a male enterprise, and that is somehow, like violent crime, mm-hmm. is almost exclusively male. And somehow this is glossed over as a being of no importance, and by focusing on it, Wolfe attracted a good deal of condemnation to herself. Uh, my character, Eleanor, I, I know this is 1938, but I do believe that Virginia Woolf, there are passages in her diaries in which, in 1917, in which, uh, you know, recognisably the same views are being uh, uh, expressed. Uh, she refers in passing to the war. Uh, even I she says, um, who deny its importance. She denied its importance, although it, but by that time, uh, in one day, in four months on the song, 1,300,000 men had died. Uh, but she still, in 1917, denies its importance. And Eleanor does uh, the same thing. 
and she simply focuses on the gender of war and decides that as a woman, and a woman with no vote, a woman with no part in the political process which had led to the war, that she simply will have nothing to do with it. And this is not a pacifist position. She isn't opposed to the war. She isn't trying to stop it or prevent further wars happening. She is simply saying, this is nothing to do with me. It's an extremely radical position. But Virginia Woolf had nobody uh, directly related to her in the war. Uh, she had nothing personally at stake. Uh, Eleanor has a brother, Toby, who dies in the war. And that imposes immense pressure on her. And what she does in mourning for Toby is to go back home and do what she said at the end of life class she would do, that she would paint what made her brother. She was not going to paint what destroyed him, which is also a perfectly valid position. And she paints the landscape round the farmhouse in which they grew up uh, over and over again. But in every figure in this empty landscape, in almost every painting, there is a shadowy figure which may or may not be a man. And what she is doing is painting the absence of a young man who should be there. In other words, she is painting the wall. She cannot not paint the wall. And later, when she uh, goes to see Kit Neville attempting to find out more about the way her brother died, she encounters Tonks, her old tutor, who's working there. And Tonks says to her, she says her bit about beauty and art is celebration. It's nothing else. It's purely celebratory. And Tonks said, yes, but as an artist, you have to paint what's in front of you. And your generation hasn't been very lucky in that respect. And, you know, Tonks was not a militaristic person at all. He was opposed to the war, I think, from the very beginning. But it never occurred to him that in the face of so much suffering, he should not use whatever talents he had to try to alleviate the suffering. And he puts that same point very firmly to Eleanor. And because it's Tonks, whom she respects so much, she can't brush his views aside as she's brushed aside the views of so many other people making the same point to her, including her brother Toby. I don't know whether that answers it. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it does. And I, yeah. I'm... Well, a couple of things. Um, I suppose in light of what you've just said... Uh, one is that this, this is a remarkable thing that Tonk says you must just paint all, all we can do is paint or draw what's in front of us yeah. knowing full well that, uh, that in that case it could never be shown there could never be I mean there was the war office was at one point quite interested in what Tonks was doing. Um, I think they probably didn't know <laughs> exactly yeah. what he was doing. There is no way these, uh, these images could have been shown to the British public at the time. Uh, facially injured, disfigured um, soldiers were very often not returned to active duty precisely because their presence would be, would be thought too damaging for morale. Uh, yes, they so, were capable of going back mm. after they were patched together. Mm. But I, I don't know whether you know a great deal, I don't, about the German plastic surgery, but my, I get the impression uh, that 
the more, more slight facial injuries were simply repaired very quickly and quite crudely. Mm. And the men were sent back into the front line. Mm. But of course, there was the culture of the dueling scar mm. as, a, as a mark of masculinity. And there was no, in England, there was no mm. corresponding positive uh, mm. view of being scarred. It's an interesting, I don't, I'm certainly no expert on this, I haven't, I haven't worked on the German material at all, but I do know that Gillies um, says that, uh, that the Germans had a much more functional attitude towards uh, all injuries. Um, whether, whether this is actually true, I don't know. It also smacks of the sort of anti-German yeah, yeah. um, uh, sort of attitudes, but that he says that they weren't at all concerned with, with issues of aesthetics. Um, that Gillies himself regarded plastic surgery as a strange new art, um, and that you know certainly he was as concerned with um, the aesthetics um, of this of his specialism as he was with restoring function. Um, so the suggestion is that the German surgeons are more concerned with restoring function. Um, it might also be that there's a different sort of relationship between the individual body and the social body or body of the state, uh, and. Uh, um, <laughs> So I think there are probably several things at play here. Uh, but, um, but certainly, yes, it was the, the aesthetics of these injuries that seemed to preoccupy Gillies, um, Ward, Muir, um, who writes in sort of extremely, yes, I mean, disturbing, um, no, no euphemism. Uh, I mean, disfigurement could never be described in these terms today, I think. No. Um, but you do get a sense from this of his own very deep discomfort with, um, with these injuries, his own inability to, to says, look these men in the face. He, he can't see them. Mm. And, and it's, it's quite interesting because what he says is that uh, he'd never really realised until looking at these men how important it was to stare somebody mm. straight in the face when you're talking to them. Mm. Well, actually, if you do that, it's a threat. Mm. Not only mm. is he finding it difficult to look at them, but he's become so self-conscious about it that he mm. doesn't realise that when you're talking to somebody, you do not stare unblinkingly mm. at them. Mm. You constantly glance away from them. And, and in fact, you know, in, in natural conversation, you're not aware usually. The point at which you become aware of those nuances uh, of, you know, holding someone's gaze or looking or, or not looking uh, is, is, is when things are difficult. Um, mm. You know, generally you're not aware. It's like running downstairs, isn't it? The moment you work out where to put your feet, you land at the bottom very quickly. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the other thing I wanted to pick up on, um, and I'll borrow, I'll borrow the book oh, if yes, I may. Yes. We're sharing, is that, uh, we're sharing the book. Very impoverished. <laughs> <laughs> Thinking about how um, Eleanor, uh, so the, the war gradually intrudes. It, 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 she's trying to keep it at bay, um, and in these these sort of uh, re repeated, these sort of obsessive paintings of landscapes with this shadowy figure, which may or may not be her beloved brother, um, it, it, there's there's a sense of absence becoming presence. Um, but for me, the moment that the, the reality of the, war, of the war suddenly becomes um, overwhelming is, uh, is in relation to the return of Toby's personal effects, which arrive as a parcel. And the family can't bear to open it, um, so the parcel is stashed in the attic behind a load of blankets. Uh, and then at one point later on, Eleanor goes, retrieves the parcel opens it up and places Toby's clothes uh, on the bed 
So his, his tunic and cap and his revolver case and his boots. And she realises there she, she almost has his body. Um, but more than anything else, she can smell him. And she's been, she's been obsessed with the smell um, emanating from this parcel of clothes. Um, okay, so I'll just read this short passage to you. Um, the smell was getting stronger again. Nothing else, nothing could have made her want to imagine how he died. No words, no photographs would have been powerful enough to break the taboo she'd imposed on herself, that the war was not to be acknowledged. But now smell, the most primitive of the senses, the one most closely linked to memory and desire, had swept all that away. Uh, so this seems to be a, um, a, a sort of breakthrough moment. Um, I think her, her encounter with Tonks and, um, and the, uh, the images that she sees in Tonks' room seems to be another moment for her. Uh, but, um, but yes, I wondered if you could just say something about the... It strikes me here that you're talking about the immediacy of somebody, an immediacy that, that, that it is possible to get from, from the smell of someone. Uh, clearly, art can't do that. Um, it can't capture the immediacy of life or the physicality of death. Uh, so art is doing something else. Um, and I wondered whether, yes, I mean, whether you wanted to say something more about that sort of peculiar relationship between smell and memory and desire and grief. I was just or, trying to work out whether, whether the sense of smell uh, is simply used in fiction and nowhere else. What do you think? I suppose journalism. Writing, certainly. <coughs> I don't think there's any other art form which uses it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I, actually, it's uh, somebody... <laughs> a journalist congratulated me on knowing quite a bit about the anatomy of the brain, which I don't, uh, because, in fact, uh, the, you know, the centre for smell and the centre for memory are very closely aligned. There is an actual physiological reason why smell is... Mm-hmm. Uh, is so evocative of memory. Mm. Um, mm. And often, uh, this is the, the medievalist in me coming through, but smell was, was always regarded as the lowest in the sensory hierarchy, vision the highest, um, the closest mm. to God, the most transcendent sense. Um, but I, I, the I was hearing the last to go. Mm. I don't mm. know that anybody's ever come back from the dead to, to, tell tell us us. That, to tell us that hearing is the last sense to go. Uh-huh. But you're always informed that this by the medical professionals at the deathbed. <laughs> You're all talking to him, dear, he can still hear you. Presumably, yes, and presumably you can't hear God. Hearing is associated with authority and the word of God. Yes. Uh, but yes, yeah, so smell is, is associated with, I suppose, our, our sort of animality, our, our instincts, our, yes, and, and so desire. And, and grief. And, and grief. grief is a yes. very, very animal thing. Mm, it it, I mean, it uh, sort of undoes one. The, the, rest, so, the restlessness of grief, the mm. uh, never quite knowing where you want to be. Well, if, mm. you, if you watch a cat that's lost its kittens, it is going through exactly the same process of searching, and wherever it is, uh, it isn't the right place because the only right place is the place where you recover uh, what you've lost and that is not possible mm. so mm. I, I'm very much aware of mm. uh, a grief as a as a very very animal state mm. of 
I mean, the other, just to stay, stay with smell for a moment, if, if we might, um, is that um, it's also associated with contagion, and smells seem to get inside us in a way that, mm. that images don't, um, and even sounds perhaps, and certainly um, mm. the sense of touch doesn't have that same sense of... Oh, and there must have been a very characteristic smell to the hospital. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, because these wounds were very liable to infection, and many of the men arrived at the hospital with an infected wound. And, of course, no antibiotics. Mm. Uh, you know, it was saline infusions twice daily, mm. which were absolute hell, of course. Mm. Basically, you're pouring salt over it. <laughs> um, the other thing, and we'll, in, in a couple of minutes, I will open the floor to questions, um, so be gathering your thoughts. Um, I, um, I wanted to ask you about... a. a, a something that happens in another one of your novels, um, Double Vision, which was published in 2003. Uh, and um, so we're talking about art and um, literature and, and sort of immediacy and issues of what can be represented and can't be represented. Uh, and I wondered whether you think that visual art, drawing, painting, um, is different from photography in this respect. Uh, and in, in Double Vision, there's a, there's a scene that takes place in the Bowes Museum. Um, is it pronounced Bowes or Bowes? Bowes. It's Bowes. the Bowes Museum yes. um, in Teesdale, which is in the Pennines. Uh, and um, standing in front of um, a small painting by Goya of the interior of a prison, the character Kate Frobisher reflects on the inadequacy of photography. She's a sculptor. Um, her husband was um, a war photographer her late husband, she asks, or she, she makes the comment, um, she reflects, photographs shock, terrify, arouse compassion, anger, even drive people to take action, but does the photograph of an atrocity ever inspire hope, she asks. So she's thinking about the contrast between photography and what it can do, uh, and Goya's painting, and what that small thing can do. Mm, yes. It's once again, I think it's the same thing as we were saying uh, about the pastels, that what makes the images bearable is the feeling that there is warmth and compassion and human sympathy. Uh, it, uh, warmth and <laughs> compassion and human sympathy in the pastel drawings, uh, which is what makes them bearable. And whether a photograph can actually mm. ever reproduce that feeling of human warmth, um, especially a photograph of an atrocity, because this constant question of what can be shown and what cannot be shown is mainly actually acted out in, in the realms of photography and, of course, mm. of television and the, uh, the very strict censorship of uh, at the presentation of war. Because we're often told that the presentation of modern war, because of the embedded journalists... Is, is, and, fo and photojournalists is more uh, accurate, more vivid, more close to the scene of action than it's ever been before. But it's also, of course, because of the embeddedness, uh, more, uh, more vulnerable to control. It is extremely controlled. Uh, I think mm. more so than it's ever been. Mm, mm, I agree. Mm. Um, the, the photography, I suppose, it, interestingly, the so Double Vision is, is published in 2003, same year that Susan Sontag's book, Regarding the Pain of Others, was first published. 
And Sontag, I, I don't know whether you were, I mean, clearly you know Sontag's book now. Uh, uh, I, I know, yes, I, I read it after. Yeah. I read the, it after so the, And you must have thought how, Sontag says something very similar, um, and I figured that you couldn't have been aware of, no, of her no, book at no, the time, no. or, or clearly vice no, versa. Think, yes. But Sontag says that um, photographs can make us, they can provoke, they can make us feel, um, but they're not much good if the task is to understand. She uses Goya as well. Um, so she, she says something rather different about the possibilities of, uh, of visual art um, in comparison to the limitations of, of photography. Uh, she says photographs can haunt us, um, and ultimately she, she says that, uh, you know, in a way, um, we have no right not to be haunted by these images. Mm. Uh, um, but she doesn't think that they can add much in the way of understanding. Um, and it, it occurs to me that we still have this idea that somehow art, unlike photography, um, it, it brings understanding. Um, we still tend to assume that photographs are a, um, are a record or a snapshot. Uh, certainly during the First World War, um, war artists were, were seen as valuable because they could sort of instill their work with understanding. They could interpret what they were looking at, whereas photographers um, weren't paid very well. Um, uh, you know, their work was certainly... Um, seen as, as necessary and there was a great appetite for it, but they were seen as simply re recording what was there. Mm -hmm. um, and there uh, this interesting, uh, rather mysterious thing of Wilfred Owen and his photographs. Wilfred Owen is said by some people to have kept in his pocket uh, photographs of atrocious injuries, mutilated, rotting corpses in his pocket, and to produce them uh, to show uh, ignorant civilians uh, what the war was really like and it, it's interesting from many points of view because it's actually it's quite distasteful and, uh, you mm -hmm. know, and, uh, and the whole thing is uh, yeah, bedeviled by questions of taste isn't it? Mm -hmm. I mean you could I think, uh, on a, another character from Double Vision doesn't watch the news because she doesn't want to be disturbed by images of suffering that she can do absolutely nothing to relieve. She simply doesn't see the point of it. And she, uh, there is a sense, I think, in which looking at the suffering of other people uh, is contaminating. Uh, you could argue very forcefully, I'm sure Tonks would have done, that the only way you can look uh, at these images without becoming a voyeur is by being a medical person who is trying to actually help the people concerned. Mm. Anything mm. else, any other way of using these images is simply immoral. Mm. Uh, I would come, you know, surprisingly close, I think, mm. to, to agreeing with that. Mm. Um, there, is a, there is a danger mm. in looking at images of suffering which you can't do anything to relieve, and the danger is that you become cynical and jaded and bored. And it's not that you're looking at frequent images, it's the fact that the passivity of not being able to do anything about it in the end wears out your compassion. And compassion is too valuable and rare to be worn out. Mm. 
And Sontag suggests something like this. I mean, it's a book that's not without its seeming con con contradictions, I yes, think. But yeah. she's, she says um, something, in fact, about the, the photographs of facially injured uh, German soldiers from the First World War. So the exactly equivalent visual archive, um, but German rather than British. And published in, and 19, published in 1924. In, in a book by Ernst yes. Friedrich yeah. called um, Krieg am um, Krieg, War Against War, as an anti-war publication, clearly. Uh, um, but she says um, about these kinds of photographs, you know, perhaps we have no right to look if we're... I, not in a position, you know, as, for example, mm. a surgeon would be to do anything about it. Um, and she seems to single out uh, images of, uh, of facial mutilation. I think she uh, finds those most difficult. As particularly mm. disturbing. Um, she calls these images of real, real horror. And of, um, and, of course, the, there's a danger in thinking that the photograph can only mean one thing, which he constantly mm. points out. The, uh, the, you know, Ernst Friedrich, the man who did this war against war, well, obviously thought the facially wounded men would make everybody think of war as an absolute abomination, which must mm. never occur again. But actually, if you were a Nazi sympathiser, mm. you would look at the faces of the mutilated men and think, yes, we need a war of revenge against mm. England. Uh, this, you know, this, mm. uh, this will never be happen again because we will win next time. Mm. Uh, a photograph never has a single meaning, and I think it's easier to manipulate visual images and make them mean the opposite mm. than it is to uh, than to do the same thing with mm. words. Mm. Though, having said that, of course, Hilary Mantle. Uh, would be, uh, or Salman Rushdie, would probably disagree with that, having been extensively quoted out of context. <laughs> well, just uh, on, on, on this point, I think the photographers now who, um, uh, who work with these kinds of issues, I'm thinking of somebody like Nina Berman, um, an American photojournalist, who exhibits her work as art as well as um, being commissioned to produce work um, you know, for, for the news media. Uh, I think she's, she sees it as crucial, um, uh, as, a, as a way of, of removing her work from a sort of editorial context, the possibility of exhibiting it in an art gallery where, you know, at least um, it's open to question um, in, in a way that perhaps it wouldn't be if it appeared uh, as an, a, an illustration within a, um, a news article um, with a caption um, and an unambiguous message. Um, so the ambiguity of art is perhaps something yes. worth holding and on to. And the way in which uh, the juxtaposition of images changes the meaning mm. of an image.